Ladies and gentlemen, grab your drinks and popcorn. Terry's feature is about to begin. Welcome to Celluloid Codswallop. And welcome to this week's episode of Celluloid Codswallop. And on this episode, I have a man, and I keep using this term in in Celluloid Codswallop, of someone who wears many hats and does many different things. But again, with my wonderful guest today, it's very true, Uh, Mr. Mark Scheffler. Mark, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm uh, above ground and breathing. <laughs> that's a good you know, that is a good answer no i have i have i have an uncle who's uh, 94 years old and he told me that uh every day that after he hit 90 wakes up looks at himself in the mirror takes a really good look at himself in the mirror says exactly the same thing <laughs> you know he's like i'm here man i'm still here I think, do you know, I think we as people in general would benefit more from thinking like that. Oh, yeah. I just, I, I'm that, I, I really, you know, I, 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 I've let, as you, your introduction said, and by the way, thank you very much for having me. Uh, uh, this you is kind of like a, the, the vicarious trip to England that I've been wanting to take in reality for a long time. Um, I've had like a really interesting life that I'm writing about now. And the more I think back on myself as a kid and then what I did as an adult, the, 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 the humbler and more grateful I get. <laughs> because, you know, to, to uh, a, a, a greater, more than a lesser degree, it all worked out. Well, so, that's, that, that's what we always like to hear. And the first thing I'm going to ask, Mark, is this. You you, you you kind of hit upon it with what you're already saying. Tell me a bit about your, your, your life story. Where does the Mark Scheffler story begin? What's your what's your background? Um, my background is that uh, um, I was mostly raised by a single father who was uh, this amazing out of the box aluminum siding salesman character. And um I was also at at the age of 10, I became the first child in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to be awarded full custody to a single male parent when the mother wasn't like dead, uh, uh, incapacitated or incarcerated. And yeah, and and it changed that that that's the moment that my life changed when I when I was eight, you know, uh, uh. it it was uh, um, something that was unexpected and it just happened. And then my mother moved off to uh, uh, Louisiana and I stayed with my father. And my father had, was this character who had been a nightclub manager and, you know, like uh, after World War Two, he, he was a very kind of a hip guy. Right. He was in very out of the box, custom made suits and drove a big Cadillac and always had a lot of cash and. You know, it was it and and knew everybody and 
you know, the, the concept, like my father never stood in line anywhere. I, he never, to go in any place, he never, you know, places where people needed tickets like baseball games and movie theaters. My father never needed anything. We just walked in, you know, and so, and, and hung out with famous people at a young age. So I got, I got kind of used to, used to juice, you know, like used to like, because I, I don't stand in lines, and I've had two wives who just can't fucking believe that, that I flatly refuse to stand in a line. And and because and I figure if, I, if I'm not on a list, I don't want to go in there, you know? <laughs> so who cares, you know? And it, it's not going to be anything that I haven't done before, so who gives a shit? So I grew up with this this weird kind of sense of of things that that were inside of a bubble and i know that because uh, obviously i've lived a broader life than that now but i grew up inside of a of a kind of a unique bubble in in pittsburgh and my father you know i was, I was talking to my eight my book agent the other day about some elements of of the book and and uh, what he was talking about he i'm 72 he's younger than me he's 60 but still we came from an older generation of parents you know where they were go to college and get a good job you know they're very in the box right my father because of what something that happened to him when he was a, a first married to my mother was the exact opposite when, when my dad was like a huge baseball guy right he grew up close to forbes field in pittsburgh and he when he was a kid, he was like an equipment assistant and hung out and, and he kind of wove his way into the fabric of the then pirate baseball organization, right? The, the, the actual company of it. And went away to World War II, came back, reconnected with, became a club, nightclub manager of the biggest nightclub in Pittsburgh, owned by my father's uncle, then uh, uh, reconnected with the pirates. And right after he married, my mother was offered the job of assistant traveling secretary for the Pirates, which is like an amazing entry-level job into the executive world of Major League Baseball, right? But my mother and her family just like made him not take the job because he'd have to travel and he'd leave his wife. I mean, they, they all these kind of old school reasons, right? And, and so he didn't. And he told me often that that story and that it was the great regret of his life that he didn't pursue his passion because he had a real understanding of it, right? He he felt that he could do really well in the, in that arena. So when you know my leanings towards show business happened, my father instead of being like the practical dad saying no you have to go to college first and you have to get a degree and then maybe you could do that my dad was all in he because he, he said that he told me he said look i'm never gonna let happen to you what happened to me if this is your passion and you really have this passion he knew that uh uh he he just you know so as i start writing thinking about my life and writing the book there, there are two goalposts inside the book, narrative goalposts, right? And and uh, one is that when I was 14, my dad and I were in a movie theater in downtown Pittsburgh. And it was a, a, one of these grand, beautiful, ornate, former live action, you know, theater, vaudeville kind of places that 
was converted into a movie theater when the media changed, when when things evolved. So it, it just so happened, going back to what I said about us never having tickets or anything, my father's cousin was the general manager of the entire Stanley Warner theater chain in the Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, tri-state area, right? So they had a zillion theaters and every one of them knew us and we just like walk in and that included concessions and, you know, popcorn. I just, it was, it was bizarre, but it, that's the way my life was. <laughs> so we were watching, we were watching Jerry Lewis in The Nutty Professor one afternoon and I just loved it. And I was a huge Jerry Lewis fan and I did Jerry Lewis impressions and I was, uh, you know, I was like, I was all in on it. Uh, so, so, and this was, I was 14. So then movie's over running the credits audience applauding and my the way the story goes is that that i said something to my dad about i said wow isn't jerry lewis like the funniest guy in the world and my dad said yeah and 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 then i was told that he told me that like i just popped off and said wow what must that be like to be in the movies you know what's that like to have that as your job and my dad who who like didn't really have a serious bone in his body, got serious for a second and looked at me and said, well, maybe you'll find out one day. So I said to him, what do you mean I'll find out one day? And then he got even more serious. And he said, hey, look, somebody does that every day of the week. Why not you? And me, who had an answer for everything, I was mute. It muted me. I had no. I, he hit the mute button. I had nothing to say. So, so I just said. Then eventually, I said, "Okay, I'll tell you what, Dad. I make a deal with you. One of these days, I'm going to star in a movie that's going to be up on that screen right here in this theater, in Larry's theater." And my dad said to me, "Fair enough. And when that happens, I'll rent the limo and we'll come to the premiere together." And we made like this little father-son, you know, deal. I was 14. Seven years later, after I did Last House and after Roger Ebert's review broke and it, it suddenly went from just being in the, you know, like the second half of a, of a scary double feature in a, a chain of drive-ins in the, in the New England area, it, it went to like 800 or 1,000 theaters, the, you know, like right after Roger's review. The publicity company calls me and says, listen, we're, we know you're from Pittsburgh. We're opening the film there and we'd like you to go and, you know, spend three days and do publicity and help the film out. I said, absolutely. I said, by the way, where is it opening in Pittsburgh? And they said, it's a theater called the Stanley. And I called my dad and they said, you're not going <laughs> to fucking believe this. You are not going to fucking believe this. And he and the night happened. He rented a limo and the two of us went to this big Klieg light premiere of Pittsburgh's own homeboy kind of thing. And so that's what the film, the film, I mean, the, the, the book mm -hmm. is uh, uh, anchored in those two points. Right. And uh, it's the, the kind of making of the fantasy promise and then it actually happening. And the journey that I, I went on to get from those two points and then surrounding it are 
a little character background and and then forward progression after that. So that that's the book I'm working on right now. And what's really cool to hear is the question that I always kind of point, you know, I will always ask people is what's the the family response to wanting to go into showbiz? And you've already answered that. And it was a very good that you got a very because a lot of times you hear parents going, "Are you sure? You know, step back a bit. They're they're unsure." But it sounds no, like your father my, my was the opposite. Was, no, no. Listen, he was. Let me tell you a story. When I was uh, ten years old, let me. I'll, I'll backtrack. My dad taught me taught me a really important lesson about life, and that was to. It, it's important to have a dream, but it's a lot more important to know how to aim yourself towards that dream. And that's the that's the, one of the things he taught me was to how to aim myself. So. You asked the, uh, initially, where was the beginning of this? So here's the beginning. Here's the actual beginning of this, I think, if I, as I look back. When I was 10, uh, uh, my dad came to me and said, look, you know, you're 10 years old, going to be 10, double digits, new decade, requires a very special birthday gift uh, to send you off into this second decade. Uh, what do you want? So I said, uh, the three stooges and he hired them for me. <laughs> they were, they, yeah, I know your face just popped, right? If, if I was at home, you'd see the picture I have with the, th- with us behind. I, I have it in my office at my home of me and the three stooges at my party when I was 10. So, so what happened was they were playing a gig at a nightclub in Pittsburgh called the holiday house. And my dad went to them and said, look, my son wants to have a birthday party and a matinee. How much you guys want? They agreed on a figure. Right. And uh, we had a party out there for about 60. I think it was about 60 people, kids and their families and then friends of their families who couldn't fucking believe this was happening. Right. And uh, um, in the middle of the show, Mo stops the show and said, you know, tells the audience, we're here to celebrate Mark's 10th birthday. Where's Mark? I raised my hand. And he said, Mark, come on up on the stage with us. So I looked at my dad. And my dad had that serious face and said, get your ass up there. And, and so I said, OK. So <laughs> I went up on the stage. Right. And and I knew all of their material. I knew mm. I'd watched I watched them. Sh- on TV every day, like uh, the the Paul Shannon show in Pittsburgh had an hour of Three Stooges shorts every day, five days a week. And I've been watching them for years. So I kind of I, I integrated myself into their little schnick their, their Whatever they were doing, I could follow it. You know, I knew their moves. And then, like, I did that for a couple of minutes. And Mo puts his hand on my head and says, I dub you the fourth stooge. Right. And fucking people went nuts. You know, I couldn't see shit, right? I couldn't. I had lights, stage lights in my eyes, mm. and I. They gave me a microphone, and I couldn't. But when he said that, the everybody applauded and laughed, and I heard, and that felt like really the only really warm, right? My whole body, I remember, it got like really warm, and my spine started to tingle, and you know, and the only, I guess. I've never done it, but the only thing I can think of from pictures I've seen, it's like those people in opium dens, right? Like you take this first hit and this warm thing comes over you, this comforting. So I I remember very shortly after that saying to myself, you know, I want more of this. I like this. This is fun. (laughs) 
And now looking back on on my life events, that's probably you know I, obviously at, at age ten I didn't uh, uh, intellectualize it the way I can now, but probably I because I remember you know hearing from my dad this thing about aiming myself towards you know whatever it is you want in life. There wasn't there was nothing specific, but it was that was his parenting, right? It would. He never pushed me in any direction. He said, but find a direction you love. And then mm-hmm. if you still love it, aim yourself there. So I remember then, you know, like pursuing funny things and, you know, wherever. And that's just kind of how it happened. Who was the most? Because I, I mean, the fact that you, you blew my bloody mind when you said the three stooges who was because you mentioned earlier on that you met famous people when you were younger who are they the most famous people a lot of baseball players a lot of Pittsburgh I knew all the Pittsburgh Pirate baseball players that were on the team in the 60s the early 60s that whole 1960s World Series team I knew just about everybody um um my dad was was good friends with Joey Bishop comedian by the name of Joey Bishop and Every time he came to Pittsburgh, we were hanging out with him. Uh, a lot of other people that, you know, musicians, just my dad had this uh, had this schmooze factor about him. Right. He was and I'll tell you, I'll tell you, even that, that stayed with him after I moved to California and after I had established myself as a, 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 a pretty good comedy writer, decent comedy writer and was working a lot. I got a call from my dad one day. I'm, I'm, I don't know. This is the early 80s. I'm going to say this call happened. Yeah, very, very early 80s. And um, he said to me, hey, listen, I saw the really good new young comedian at, at the club. They, there was a local Funny Bones, I think it was called in Pittsburgh. And uh, I, I, my dad said, I, I think this kid's really going somewhere. And I said, great. He said, yeah, his name's Jerry Seinfeld. So I gave him your number and he went to L.A. and he said he's going to call you. So I said, OK. So I don't know, like a month later, phone rings. I pick up the phone. I go, hello. I said, hello. He said, hello, is this Mark? I said, yes, it is. He said, I'm Jerry Seinfeld. I'm a friend of your father's. <laughs> And we, you know, that's how I met Seinfeld. We, I said, yeah, well, whenever you're at the improv, let me know. I'll drop down there. So that, I mean, that's, you know, that's how, yeah, my dad used to come out and visit me and just, you know, he loved the, the, uh, the, the, the stuff that I was able to, to like take him, uh, uh, with my dad was a big Frank Sinatra fan, you know, like he came of that generation, right? But he'd never seen Sinatra live. But he was a huge, he was like, he used to sing Sinatra songs all the time. And, you know, he just, he was like, that was his hero. So one of my good friends is Tom Dreesen, who's the comedian who opened for Sinatra for like 15 years. So they were playing in Pittsburgh. And I was there, I I got my dad, uh, uh, like the best seats in the house, plus an invitation to the after show party. And the next day uh, after it happened, my phone ring rang like early in the morning because, you know, it doesn't matter how long you live on different coasts. Seems the people, your relatives on the East Coast never can quite get the fact that their time is 
you're three hours behind them. So when they're up and ready to go, you're still sleeping. But it does. It's my dad. And he said, I just went, hello. And I hear greatest night of my life. <laughs> and then and then I he said, except, of course, the night you were born. Other than that, this was the greatest <laughs> night of my life. So, you know, that's the that's where I came from. And, you know, I, I left college. I, I went to college. I actually went for two years, a year and a half, actually, semester, two, three semesters. And I quit in 1969. I just couldn't take it anymore. It was just fucking with my head. I just didn't want to be there. And I only had three life goals, right? Three firm goals. I wanted to smoke as much weed as possible. I wanted to sleep with as many different women as possible. And I wanted to make, to afford the weed and the women. I, I look back as I'm writing this book and I realize that on every level, I have greatly exceeded my own expectations. <laughs> oh, excellent. So I've got to have to ask you, Matt, because when we, we uh, conversed once before, you were, you were, didn't you, with the comedy store? Have I got that right? Yes, I'm I'm uh, an original paid regular at the comedy store, mm -hmm. uh, which means I was there before the big comedy strike in 1979. And then I was there after the comedy store strike. So all of us who were there after were the the original paid group. Robin Williams, Jay Leno, David Letterman, uh, Richie Lewis, Larry David, you know, all, all of us were there before and then thereafter. See, the problem is that I will, if I start asking about that, I'll keep you going. I'll, I'll with my own obsession, I'll start going too much on. Well, tell, okay, let's run with it. Tell now, me a bit. Any question you, you ask. So tell me a bit about uh, what Larry David was like, because I am a huge fan of Seinfeld and Larry David. I don't know Larry that well. I've met him just a few times. So he, he we, we weren't there at the same time at, at the conference. <laughs> So we were there in the same era, but at different points in the year. I'll make a general statement about people. OK. And if you ask me specifics, I'll answer them. But generally speaking, and I and, and, and I mean, pretty much everybody I've known, especially famous people, are just regular people with irregular jobs. You know, it's because. I, I know a lot of people and I've met a lot of people and I've worked with a lot of people. And that's, you know, there, there's the occasional prima donna. You know, there's some actresses I've worked with who kind of caricatures of that. There's some actors I've worked with who are kind of caricatures of that. But mostly everybody, you know, they're just people. It's like normal, you know, uh, I'll give you I'll give you an example. You know who John Ritter was, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Three's company. Correct. So uh, uh, John, uh, I had known a little bit, but was a good friend of my uh, late partner, uh, writing and producing partner, Sam Denoff. Uh, uh, so one day we, we were at Universal doing Harry and the Hendersons. John was at Universal filming uh, uh, Noises Off, a film that he did with Carol Burnett and a bunch of, you know, Noises Off, right? Chris Reeves in it, isn't he, as well? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we're walking on the Universal lot where we're coming back from lunch. And there's a, a 
electric cart behind us that honks and we turn around and it's John in a cart. So we didn't know what he was doing there. We didn't, you know, we weren't aware of the of the movie. And John said, hey, I'm here doing noise stuff with Carol and a couple of other people. He said, it's a really cool set. Come on, I'll take you. So we jumped in John's cart and he took us on to the set that, that you know, that kind of tricky trapdoor-ish kind of, mm-hmm. kind of set that they used. And went through it. We spent about an hour. And we just talked and, it, and, and then he drove us back to our office. But I use that story as, as an exemplar. It was just a guy who knew another guy who say, I'm, I'm doing this really cool job. You want to come and see it? Yeah, come on, I'll take you on a tour. And then I'll take you back to your office. That's And John was an especially sweet fellow. He was, I was very sad when, when he passed. He was, a, he was a really, you know, good, good guy. He was, you know, and mostly everybody, you know. Uh, everybody I know, I've known either for a long time or sometimes people I meet, but just regular people with irregular jobs. That's a brilliant way of describing people who work in the industry, I guess, for quote unquote, you know, because the term famous is always banded about, isn't it? But that's yeah. that's a very good way of describing them. What was, I never, I've never seen these people live, but obviously Robin Williams was just, you see him and he was just a force of nature. Robin was the purest natural performer I have ever I've, I had ever met that's then and or, or seen now. And I've seen a lot of really talented people. But Robin was uh, 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 he was in a different category, you know, and the another sweet guy, another guy uh, who never never changed one bit from when I've met him. You know, when we were all at the comedy store, we were, when we first would meet each other, we were always our first name from wherever we were from, right? You know, like uh, Robin was Robin from San Francisco. Letterman was David from Indianapolis. Uh, 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 Jay Leno was Jay from Boston. Uh, I was Mark from Pittsburgh. Michael Keaton was Michael from Pittsburgh. You know, we, we like that. So, you know, he was, I remember being at the comedy store at Westwood. I hadn't met Robin at this point. And somebody mentioned, I was there to do a show, and somebody mentioned to ask me if I'd, if, if I'd seen that guy Robin from San Francisco. And I said, no, not yet. And they said, oh, just wait. And then I saw him for the first time, maybe, you know, a week later or something, and I just was blown away. And it just, yeah, he's, he's things you know this that's what a lot of comedians today like i i still perform a little bit every now and then and i go to the comedy store when i'm in la uh, i try to get there every now and then and there are a lot of really talented people right now but there's nobody who sucked nobody around today who sucked the oxygen out of the room like robin williams it got to be where it was a rite of passage right uh for all of us to follow Robin, to be on a show one night and have to follow Robin. And, you know, you, you really, you really don't. And, and he, he really would suck the oxygen right out of the room. Like people, the people in the audiences would just, they would just be exhausted. They'd be all ready for Gatorade, right? You know, they just, just because he was that energetic and he was that, he had, he was that much of a force. 
Um, and I, again, I say nice, one of the nicest guys ever. Just, you know. And what what was he like off? Because obviously you'd see him on stage, and it's like all oh, the energy. What was he like off stage? I'll tell you a story, and you and this story should should answer your question. One night I'm at the comedy store Sunset. It's about eleven thirty ish, and I'm just kind of hanging out. And I see him. You know, we're all in kind of like the back area in the hallway, uh, uh, where the uh, drink area where they made the drinks. And he's walking around in circles. And, and I said, what's wrong with you? And he said, I lent my car to somebody and I have a 1215 in Westwood. And I have, I, I, you know, I'm getting nervous. I said, come on, I'll take you. I'll, let's just go. So I took him over there and uh, uh, we walked in and there were three people. Three people in the audience at 12.15 on, on a Saturday night in Westwood. And he gets up on stage, they introduce him, he gets up on stage, and with the exact same energy, does the same show that he would do if there were 300 people sitting in the audience. He gets off stage. And we're getting back in my car. And I looked at him and I said, this is a great fucking show. And he said, oh, thanks, man. I said, no, not, not that you could do a great show. We know that. It's just you did it for three people the same way you do it for 300 people. And in the most innocent, kind of childlike, wondrous, simplistic delivery, he just looked at me and said, yeah, well, you got to. And that's a, that and, is the sign of a good professional person, and, but also a good person. And I I said to myself at the time, boing, like like said, okay, man, lesson learned, lesson learned. You know, like I'd been through a lot. I I worked in New York um, after I, I I was the stage manager of the Raleigh Hotel in the Catskill Mountains for about a year. I worked for a comedian by the name of London Lee. And I started out just as his driver, road manager, schlepper, you know, general assistant. And then I started writing jokes for him that worked. And then I became part of his act in a bit that he did with his former road manager. And I stayed with him through like 150, 160 club dates in the Catskill Mountains where I was on stage like almost every night doing doing a bit so i had a lot of stage experience and we ended up with two weeks at the copacabana so i had like serious yeah yeah so i yeah i did i was part of his act doing at during a two-week co-headlining gig at the copacabana in january i think 71 70 71 i don't know so like so so um i had a lot of stage experience and then i i did last house and it became what it became. Uh, so for two weeks while it was at its apex, I was one of the stars of a top 10 um, movie in the United States. Right. It, and, and it's a weird thing, but it continues on through time every now and then doing something different 
and now uh, this week on the second, two days ago, three days ago, was this the fourth or fifth? Fourth. Yeah, two days ago, it was part of an exhibition of films. I think six of them that was screened at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Um, I saw the flyer, a friend of mine sent a flyer and I wrote a tweet out. I said, dear Wes, David and Freddie, you're not going to fucking believe this. And then I posted the link to the exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art. And I had one of those, uh, you know, the movie Casablanca. I do. Yes, I'm a fan. Right. I like that film. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that moment when when Humphrey Bogart is standing in his bar in, in Rick's Cafe and Ingrid Bergman walks in for the first time and he looks at Sam and he goes of all the gin joints in all the world. She has to walk into mine. Right. I look at this flyer with these six films uh, that that the Museum of Modern Art, their curator, has chosen for this exhibition that they're doing. And I think to myself, of all the horror films in all the world that have been made. This fucking thing is on that list, right? Yeah. <laughs> I it's it's like holy shit, you know. Totally. So so yeah. So so I have this this um, opinion of myself uh, uh, based on that, and you know, just just reaffirming actually the opinion that in one tiny grain of sand size uh, a moment i became part of american film history because last house most certainly is yeah. okay that, that's an undeniable fact and i'm part of last house so in some fragmented grain of sand uh, size way um i've i like i said i've achieved what i set out to do so I'm going to take you to the last house to ask the question, what was the whole, how did you find out about it? What was the casting process? I would mm. like to know people, because obviously you, you're well known for the character Junius uh, style. So how, how did that come about? Okay. So um, I had a manager at the time uh, who was handling me, Dick Towers. Now, Dick Towers, Dick Towers is the guy who played Dr. Collingwood. He was an actor, a Broadway actor who then became a manager, but still liked to keep his uh, uh, toes wet, came up and he took the role under the name of uh, Gaylord St. James. So Dick was was for a first manager in show business, couldn't have been a more ideal character. He was a former Broadway actor who had a tremendous amount of experience in New York and knew the ins and outs and he was a terrific guy and like you know just hello darling how are you it's wonderful <laughs> to see you tonight it's just you're lovely you're lovely you're lovely i said wonderful to see you have some yogurt have you had yogurt yet it's wonderful so this is this is how he was right so the way the way we used to do it is I'd go into the city that, you know, from my apartment and I I'd make the rounds and his his office, you know, once or twice a week. It wasn't there was the technology didn't exist the way we have it instant communication these days. So it always made sense to, like, show your face. Right. So I walk into his office. 
And he sees me come in. He says, oh, I was just going to try to get a hold of you somehow. Come into my office. So I walked in. I said, what's up? And he was that, you know, you watch the movie. He was a tall guy, right? And just yeah. you can see if you watch the movie again, you can see what I'm talking about in his performance. Right. He said, I have a movie for you. I said, really? He said, yes, it's a wonderful role. And I said, have you read the script? I don't have to read the script. They told me about it. (laughs) (laughs) So so, he says, here, here's the address. You're going to ask for two guys, young guys, brilliant young guys. The names are Wes and Sean. Don't ask me their last names. I don't know them. Say I sent you for the role of junior. So I take the thing and I say, okay. I go down. I said, what time? Yeah, I said, what time's the appointment? He said, you're late. And (laughs) (laughs) so I hustled down to Sean's office, and uh, uh, which was uh, downtown, like by six or seven blocks or uptown. He's close by. Hustle in, and I go up and I meet. This this uh, hippie looking guy with long, stringy blonde hair, uh, skinny, and another sh- a guy is short, uh, uh, running around with a he's got a mustache and a little a weight, not a lot, but you know he's not skinny and he's running around and one is Wes and one is Sean. It was Sean Cunningham and Wes Craven, right? So I introduce myself and uh, they say okay. And I I uh, read the scene where uh, Junior's doing the dream. They wanted me to pretend I was, you know, act like I was asleep and then go through the scene like that. I do it. I don't think I did it more than two or three times, if that, you know, and they said, thank you very much. And by the time I had walked back to Dick's office, I walked in and his arms were up like this is. They love you. You're there. It's your role. You've got it. You have a movie. You booked your first movie. Excellent. Come here and have a yogurt. You know, I mean, it was like, so that's how I got the movie. That's like, that's it. That's that. That's the exact way I got it. Same day. Just happened. Bing, bang, boom. Well, amazing. <laughs> yes. Yes. A hundred percent. You know, but that's. That things like that, that my career is like if you if you look at life through your life in stages and you're a kid, you're with your parents or you're with some kind of group that hopefully raises you not to be a a serial killer and you enter society and, uh, you know, but then a lot of people just move through their lives. Right. With nothing uh, uh, momentous or monumental ever happening, they have normal desires. You know, they they think in a certain way. Uh, so then you have people who have ideas. You know, like mm-hmm. big ideas, things they want to do. Well, they move through their lives, and either things happen to allow them to move that way, or they don't. I've been really lucky and just that every time I wanted to do something or I needed something to happen to move my particular train down the track, it appeared, you know. So I use the analogy that life is like a raging creek, 
right? And when you're young and you get to be about 18 or 19, you, you get to the bank of the of one side. And then it it's going to take you like 40 years to get across the other side or 45 years, but it's treacherous waters. And a lot of people drown. A lot of people get swept away. A lot of people, you know, barely make. But with me, and I, and I say this is absolute fact, looking back, every time I needed to move to make progress and to move forward, a stepping stone appeared. Something like I've had the weirdest. So the way I became a writer, Last House was uh, a big deal. And, and then it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and then everything and, and women were like for two weeks. Like I was a movie star and like in that two weeks, like girls were all over me. It was like, you know, girls from my high school graduating class just when I was in just it was just like weird. And then it went away. And and I realized that I liked that and I didn't want it to stop. But now I was just like another out of work actor in New York. So one night I'm at a party and I see a guy who kind of looked like me. And he's talking to a beautiful model actress looking girl. And I I stepped closer. Luckily, they were by the food area. So it didn't look like I was stalking them. I was just eating a lot. And uh, he was telling her. Yeah, I have an agent in Los Angeles on the coast. And yeah, I'm working. I'll, I'll have my draft finished soon and then I'll I'll they'll want changes but I have some ideas in the second act and you know I need to put a button on the on the uh uh, uh second act where the uh uh where it changes from a one he's and this girl's wrapped up in him and I, I thought to myself well shit I could do that I, I could tell girls I'm a writer so I went out and I bought a bunch of books on on writing, television writing and screenwriting. And I just learned a bunch of buzzwords and a bunch of shit and uh, went around bars, parties. And I had I developed this rap about, you know, I was writing a, a script and I had an agent. I just were basically lying and repeating what this guy was saying. Right. I don't know if he was telling the truth, but, you know, he sounded he, had, he convinced. So 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 one day um, I'm I'm at. Um, an audition for a commercial at a place called N. Lee Lacey and Associates. Lee Lacey is the guy who directed that very famous Mean Joe Green football commercial, Coca-Cola commercial, that won a lot of awards uh, when it was when it was released. Uh, so um, I'm talking to this girl, and then I get a tap on my shoulder. And I turn around and it was the director, Lee. I had known him because I had done some a couple of things with him before. And he liked me. He, we had a nice relay. I was like uh, a favorite of his. And he said to me, hey, listen, I was uh, I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but I have an agent in, at William Morris in Los Angeles. I want to read that as soon as you're finished. So I took him aside and I said, look, man, you've been really nice to me and good to me. So I'm going to be straight with you. I'm not writing anything. It's all bullshit. I just do it to get, I just do it to get laid. And he said to me with a very serious face, he said, are you getting laid? I said, oh, yeah, all the time. It works like a charm. He says, then, my boy, you're a fucking idiot. I said, what do you mean? He said, if you can get women to drop their pants 
for things that you're telling them. You need to forget that, take those words and put them on a page and actually write something. And and I said, I never thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) I never really looked at it that way. (laughs) There's some truth to it, though. It makes sense. If it's so good that it works as a falsehood. Yeah. So so I don't know how long it took me. I don't know. It probably took me like six months to finish it. Uh, But I sent it to him. And and he said to me, uh, uh, I'll let you know, you know, he said, looks okay to me. So he sent it to his agent in California, a guy named Stan Kamen, who was then head of the motion picture department at William Morris, who looked at it and realized it was more of a TV movie. Uh, uh, and he sent it to the TV department. They did what they do. And uh, a couple of like, I don't know, weeks, months, I forget the time frame later. I got a call from Lee saying, uh, well, kiddo, looks like you're moving to California. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, William Morris sold your script to NBC. I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, uh, uh, the, you know, I'll be in touch. We'll make all the travel arrangements um, and I'll, t- you know, and you'll be set. Don't worry about it. So let me let me say to you that when I quit college and ended up going to the Catskills, I was going to go to California right away. And my father said to me, look, you can go wherever you want and I'll help you get there. But I don't think you should go to California now. I think you should go to New York. And and I said, why? He said, well, because he said, California is a weird place. It, it doesn't look as tough as it is. And you need to go to New York and learn a bunch of shit. And then if you're supposed to go to California one day it'll reach out and grab you and pull you to it. And when Lee was making that, I was talking to Lee on the phone and he was saying, well, it looks like you have to move to California. Uh, my office is going to make all the arrangements. You'll have this, you'll have that. I thought about my dad saying, I called my dad and I said, you were so fucking right. It, Because had I gone to California, last house wouldn't have happened. My nightclub career, you know, what I was doing. All that shit that I learned that he, that my father while he may not have known specifically, he knew generally that that that's the road I needed to take. And he wanted to make sure that I was on it. So. Part of my story is that when I moved to L.A., I never had that. I packed up everything and put everything in the car and drove to Los Angeles, crossed the desert and ran out of gas and had to borrow money. And now I actually was flown there first class. Uh, the day I landed, I had a car, I had an apartment, I had an office, and I had William Morris as an agent. The day I landed, the wow. day, I mean, the that, very day I landed. So I've had this, in, I and, and I've had this this incredible luck, right? To to have, you know, to be basically. A, you know, like a, a dilettante and and uh, uh, lazy and and not really motivated to do much else than have fun. And I'm a chicken shit, so I could never be a criminal. And I, I was lucky enough to find an, a world, you know, like I, I say about, yeah, about the comedy store. That in the time that we were all there, <clears throat> Robin and Jay and David and me and Mark Summers and Glenn Super and all these people. 
it was it, more than a club. It was an orphanage. It was a place for people who really had no other place to be because really I, I look at myself in, in it, you know, through a very, through a starkly realistic lens. And I know that in any other country, uh, 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 in any other time, a person with my particular skill set would be on, on the street. I would be homeless, you know, because I really, I really don't do anything. I just like think weird shit and I either act like it or I say it. And that's it. That's the sum total of my existence. You know, whether I'm writing a book, I'm writing a script, I'm doing stand up. It's just me thinking about weird shit and then telling people about it. We're going so I'm going to take you back on a couple of couple of very good points and interesting things you've said. So going back to the comedy store, do you mm-hmm. did you keep, or do you or did you keep in contact with people throughout yes, time? I, I, um, Mark Summers and I have been best friends since the day we met. Um, I talked to him even in Colombia here. We we text, we talk, you know, um, uh, some some other people. Uh, a guy named Joey Gaynor, you know, uh, Jimmy Walker and I are friends. Marsha Warfield, I talk to all the time. Uh, we stayed friends. Uh, Tom Dreesen and I are good friends. Um, Johnny Dark, uh, uh, you know, just I, I. It's a weird thing, like. The Comedy Store just had its 50th uh, reunion, you know, 50th mm-hmm. anniversary party. Last April, uh, shortly before we came to Colombia, and it was just comedians for the most part, you know, all of us who had been there for all this time. And the nice thing about it is, I mean, we used to play softball together and we'd hang out together. We it, it wasn't it, it was a it was a lifestyle. You know, it mm-hmm. was. It was it was like the comedy store and the improv in in L.A. are about a mile and a half away from each other. So so um, every night we were in one place or the other or or both, you know, obviously not at the same time. But but we would just go back and forth. And it was a lifestyle. It was a really, you know, sometimes I I I look back and I say, well, you know, I stopped because I got a show on the air and I was busy writing and then my writing career took off. And the, the the reason I'm back doing stand up occasionally now is that I need I need to touch people again, like uh, up close and personal. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I need that. And it I, I do don't do a lot of shows, but luckily people let me perform whenever I want at these places. So I can, you know, go and do it. And I just I just like that feeling of hearing laughter like upfront, close and personal. And you're having by doing that sort of stuff, you're having a positive impact on people, aren't you? It's yeah, I hope. You know, I, I I mean, my my agent, my book agent, keeps telling me that the book I'm writing is an inspiring story, right? And I I I don't like to think of it in terms like that, only because that's like arrogant to think that you know, like I was I I never felt like I inspired my children, but apparently I have because they all say I did. They're all successful and happy and, you know, they they all say I did. I just tried to be more of a male life guide and not not be like a possessive person, because that's how my dad was with me. He was not 
he wasn't like a parent parent. He was more like a really cool male life guide who kind of helped me navigate treacherous waters that he he'd already navigated himself through. So, you know, I, I guess I became the same kind of dad and that's the same kind of person I am, I guess, is it, you know, we're, we're here for such a short time. Might as well have fun. It's true. <laughs> with, with regard to the comedy store, I'm, I'm, you're going to have to tell me if I'm right or wrong on this. Is it owned by the Shaw family? Who's in yes. Paul, the Shaw's family. And Peter and Paulie now run it now. Right. And so you've you've been around and seen them, and it's good to say that it's still within the family as well. You know, it's oh stayed. yeah, yeah. I don't think you know. I, I I would doubt very seriously if Mitzi would ever let it out, have let it out of her family. You know, in her in her will. No, Peter and Paul run it. Paulie now run it. And then there's a guy whose name is Adam Resnick, who's the Booker. I haven't been back working there since you know, whenever, but, uh, I, I do go there and, you know, they're real nice to me and, you know, cause they know my, my name's on the wall and has been for mm-hmm. over 40 years. So, you know, it's a pleasant environment when I want to go, but with COVID and everything, I, I don't really like to go around crowds. I, I which I, is I, understandable. Yeah. Yeah. Totally understandable. I, I've always had, always had a fear of anything I couldn't make laugh. And, uh, you know, yeah, COVID definitely makes things tricky. I want to also ask you, going back to Last House, what was the filming experience like on that for you? Um, well, you got to think that, you know, I'm 20 years old, 20, you new to it, 21 years old. It's my first movie. It's first movie for Wes as a director. Sean had made one movie before, uh, like a pseudo documentary called uh, uh, Together. So, we, you know, the crew had more experience than we did, uh, but it it worked. I mean, it it wasn't. It was a pleasant experience creatively. It was it 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 turned out to be. The the I learned every the foundation of everything I know about filmmaking I learned on that movie. Things are a little more complicated now and done sort of different ways, but the the fundamentals are exactly the same. And I got a chance to see it because I was there almost every day of shooting. Uh, I got a chance to see it up close and personal. And so I, I I you know I'm grateful for the experience. I really am. I'm just Jesus. You know, it was like four years of film school in four weeks. And uh, obviously it was Wes's kind of first thing. But how was he as a director? Because he, he come, he always I mean, putting the director thing aside, he always came across when I saw people who speaking about him and in interviews as a really nice person, which Sweetheart. seems strange for a guy who makes horror. <laughs> but, 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 you know, Wes's intent he was a very kind of a peaceful guy, right? He was he was a real he was a nice guy, uh, and and he wanted to, you know, as far as the director is concerned, his 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 main vision was he wanted to take violence, person on person violence, you know, and instead of it being sanitized or 
shot a certain way where it's not as as vivid. Uh, uh, he wanted to bring it downstage center and show people what it really looked like when human beings were fucking with human beings, right? This is what it looks like. This is this is it. Here it is, and to to that, you know. That was his vision. That was what he wanted to do. And he shot stuff that, you know, achieved his vision. So he it was that's why it was very successful for him. That's why it jump started his career, because Roger Ebert's review of of Last House starts out like this. Okay, this is the first paragraph. Last House on the left. This is dated January 1st, 1972. He says, Last House on the Left is a tough, bitter little sleeper of a movie that's about four times as good as you'd expect. There is a moment of such sheer and unexpected terror that it beats anything in the heart in the mouth line since Alan Arkin jumped out of the darkness at Audrey Hepburn in Wait Until Dark. That's the first line of Roger Ebert's review. And it and it gets better from there. Mm. Okay, and and it get and it gets better from there. So, you know, what, where when you do that, when you have that, well, wow, yeah, you know, I mean, and and I say his review. So, what what happened was that the film was in the was in the drive-ins, and that review came out. It's like four more paragraphs, right? And yeah. uh. All of a sudden, Sean Cunningham's running around his office trying to figure out where he's going to get 800 prints that he's got to ship out like in three days. You know, what a what what a problem to have, right? And it just fucking took off. It just, I mean, I'm telling you, man, it was like fucking overnight. Hess and I were living together. David Hess and I were living together in an apartment on 85th Street between Central Park West and Amsterdam. And uh, uh, we'd be out partying, going to bars and having fun. And we go, we, we get home late one night. We go to sleep. We wake up the next day and we see that that New York City has been papered with one sheets from Last House on the Left. After that, we get announcing, you know, it's opening at the Lexington 70, 86th Street or whatever, wherever Broadway. Oh, wow. Holy shit. Wow. Yeah, absolutely changes everything, doesn't it? It's just fucking change everything. Now you've already given me a bit of an indication of how and how and why you got into kind of writing, um, but when you do when you write on shows, that was um, you were actually worked and you, you mentioned it earlier on one of my all time favourite shows, which was Harry and the Hendersons. Yes. Um, now, as that was a spin off from a film. Yes. Did you get any sort of limitations placed on you upon what you could actually do? Uh, no, no. Uh, we, we, I worked on the first season, so I was there like at the start of it. And um, as I recall, you know, it was uh, produced by Amblin and Universal, so that was Spielberg, right? So yeah, Spielberg stuff. Yeah. So we got some notes from him on the pilot. And then we had a couple of meetings with uh, Kathleen Kennedy, who was then 
an executive there. And Stephen made some comment. But no, no, we did what we wanted to do. And do you have any sort of really fond memories from working on that at all? I have I have very, very sad, some sad memories and some fond memories. Sad because okay. uh, uh, Kevin, who played Kevin Peter Hall, who played yeah. Harry originally, uh, got sick and passed away halfway through the first season. Um, and two episodes that Sam and I wrote were uh, uh, directed by Tony Dow, who just passed away. And another sweet guy, you know, another guy it was a pleasure to work with. And, you know, his wife, Lauren, was with him, you know, a few days when we were because we shot in the back, you know, in the lot uh, mm-hmm. exteriors. And so, you know, every, I try to learn from everything. You know, I... I've done some weird jobs. I've worked on some weird shows, uh, but everything. Now that I'm cata- you know, cataloging everything from my book, I look back. I've had so much fucking fun, you know. I mean, look, I have a, I have, a, I have an apartment in L.A. I have a house in the desert. I spend four months a year, three months a year in South America with my wife's family. Come and go as I please. You know, Pretty damn good. What the fuck, man? Like, what? Who, what is not to be grateful for? Well, uh, no, yeah. Because I also was interested when I was learning about stuff you've worked on. That's a bit of a different one. You, I am right, and you were a writer on the Happy Days reunion. Ah, uh, writer and co-producer, yes. So how? I mean, that I was just like, wow. Tell me how that all falls well, into place, and what you can tell me about that. Well, um, there's a an executive producer who does uh, those kinds of shows by the name of Malcolm Leo. Uh, Malcolm Leo, as I recall, had the same agent as Sam and I had at that time. This Malcolm sold this show to uh, um, I think it was ABC originally. Uh, and when they were looking for uh, a co-producer writing team to to write the show, um, the agent suggested Sam and me, principally, I believe, because Sam had met, had known Malcolm a little bit, but Sam was very good friends with Gary Marshall, and I had just come off of uh, Char. I, you know, I knew. Sam knew Ronnie since Ronnie was a kid, Ron Howard. Yeah. And, and um, I knew uh, Scott from Charles in Charge. Charles in Charge. Yeah. And, yeah. And, um, you know, there was there was a kind of synergy there that that um, and I knew Henry uh, a little bit uh, and had worked at Paramount. So I knew the cast. I wasn't a stranger to them. And we all met. We met with Malcolm, and Malcolm said, "Hell yeah!" So we got, we did the job. We got the job, and then Sam and I sat down and screened all 227 episodes of Happy Days. Then we went around. We we met with Ronnie over at Imagine to make sure he was in. Um, we we met with uh, Henry and asked Henry to be the host, and Henry said yes. And then 
I called Scott's Scott's father Mario was at the time you know alive and he was managing so I said called Mario and you know I said this is what we're doing the only one we didn't get was uh, what's her name uh, Aaron Moran yeah uh, she was going through some shit and she made some very weird demands and the network didn't want them didn't want to go along with it and you know it was when you do shows like that that they're all done uh, um, in in a contract form known as favored nations which means that everybody gets paid the same so yeah. that that's if you tell somebody we're doing favored nations that means that everybody gets the same everything so ronnie agreed to it uh anson agreed to it donnie agreed to it uh pat marita who, who i knew he agreed mm-hmm. to it uh al molinaro agreed to it uh, um, uh, Tom agreed to it. Marion agreed to it. Mm-hmm. You know, the only one who didn't agree to it was Aaron, and the decision was made to, you know, say thank you, but no thank you. So, and that's interesting because you would think if, I mean, if you think about the level Ron Howard's at, if everybody's okay with a flat rate, you know, whatever it will be, it will be. It's interesting that she didn't want that. That kind of surprises me. From what I understand, I mean, I have no no firsthand knowledge other than listening to, you know, being in a room when some phone calls happen. She was going through some weird shit and mm. ultimately it apparently got her. But, you know, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that based on what I had heard that what happened or happened. But it's sad because it would have been yeah. great, you know. Uh, but at the same time. You know, show's got to be made, and you can't let one person stand stand in in line. Especially when we got, you know, we got the the, the big shots, we got the, the 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 heavies. You know, I got I got Ron Howard and Henry Winkler to to agree to do it. And you are know? they as nice as you would think? Because they just come across as the nicest sort of people. <laughs> These are Henry, especially. Yeah. Is a this he is a sickeningly nice person. Okay? <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> okay, okay, he is a sickeningly nice person. I, 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 no, he is. He's he's like um um. I guess that's the best way to describe it. He's he's just <laughs> you know. It's like it's like you could put Henry in a room with Hitler. And ten minutes later, Hitler could be saying, "All right, Jews, not so bad," you know, <laughs> like that, that. His 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 aura, his whole existence, his, his his state of living, is just nice. And yeah. and Ronnie is pretty much the same way, right? It's just and and that's what I keep telling people. Like I said earlier, they're just regular yeah. people with irregular jobs. But it's a lovely thing to hear that somebody as big and powerful as Ron Howard is the is a nice guy. They've not turned into like some maniacal asshole. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, one time, Mark Summers, a couple of years ago, Mark Summers and I uh, uh, walked into Arts Deli in uh, Studio City uh, to have lunch. And Henry was in there. It's a very close to CBS uh, Radford's uh, studios. And Henry was sitting in a booth by himself having lunch. 
So he sees us and he says, what, you can't have lunch with me? <laughs> Something? You can't have lunch. You can't sit down. You guys have to have your own table. You can't sit down here and have lunch with me. But we're, are we not friends? Do we not all know each other? You know, so we <laughs> like you talk about Harry and the Hendersons. OK, mm-hmm. so, you know, Bruce Davison was the star of that show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I haven't seen Bruce in quite a long time. You know, it's the way things are. Your paths don't cross. If you don't stay in touch, your paths don't cross. Mm-hmm. So he was at uh, the Chiller Convention in uh, New Jersey last uh, beginning of June, I think. And I couldn't make it there. I wasn't appearing there, and I couldn't. I was getting ready for my trips. I couldn't even go. So I have a video editor friend of mine who uh, uh, does some work for me, and he was going. So I said, look, here are a couple of people that I would like you to go to. And when you get in front of them, say hello for me. One of them was a guy named Tony Mordente, who's an original cast member of uh, West Side Story. Uh, And one of the others was Bruce. So um, my friend gets to Bruce's table and he says, uh, and I have a hello from you from Mark Scheffler. And Bruce says, and I said, maybe he won't even remember me. I told my friend, I said, I don't know if he'll even remember me. So my friend called me and he said, remember you. He started quoting your jokes and he wishes you the best and wants to get in touch. He said, but he, he started quoting your jokes and, and brilliant. yeah. So, so, you know, um, oh, I'll tell you another Harry and Henderson story. This is, this one's kind of interesting. Okay. So, so here's another Harry and the Henderson story. Uh, our offices were in a building in Universal that um, uh, had a very long, narrow hallway that led to offices even with doors, right? Conference room and whatever. So, so when I, whenever I was stuck creatively, I used to take a putter, and some golf balls, and I'd. It was like 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 a ball hockey, right? Because there were narrow walls and ball couldn't really go anywhere, and I just get at one end and I'd smack it. You know, like just to relieve some stress. So one day I was doing that and the door on the other end to the outside opens up. And this girl about 17, 16, 17 with a big head of hair, uh, sweating, uh, holding an eight by ten, looking around like this, uh, you know, shit, pissed Mm -hmm. off. So I looked at her. I said, what's the problem? And she said, I'm late for an audition. And I'm lost and I don't know where I'm going and I'm going to lose this chance and shit. So I said, well, let me see if I can help you out. So I took her into our office and Sam was sitting there and he's looking at this young girl I bring. I said, have a seat on the couch. I said, who are you supposed to see? So she hands me the slip. So I dialed the extension and I said, "Uh, yes, this is uh, uh, Mark Scheffler, producer of Harry and the Hendersons. Yes, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Anyway, listen, um, I have uh, an actress here who has an appointment with you guys. Uh, uh, and she, we're going to look at her for something. And as soon as we're finished, I, I just grabbed her off. She was headed your way. I grabbed her right off the, the walk and I wanted her to see something. Perfect. Excellent. Her name? Um, Hillary Swank. Oh. Hillary. OK, I'll let you know. All right. Bye. 
So I said, here, you're off the hook. Don't worry about it. Whenever you get there, you get there. So she looked at me. She says, oh, my God, thank you so much. And we talked for a few minutes and gave her a bottle of water and sent her on her way. And like the week or two later, I hired her to uh, uh, play a part, uh, talking, speaking role. Uh, and, and the executive producer said to me, well, shouldn't we cast for that? I said, there's no reason to. Uh, trust me. This girl, had, there's something about this girl that, uh, uh, y- y- believe me when I tell you, it's just, I've been around a long time. And even then I had been around a long time. I said, Sam and I went to her and said, look, if you don't cast this girl, it's a huge mistake. And uh, uh, we 100% stand behind the fact that she'll be perfect for this. And she was, uh, you know, because she, she's fucking brilliant. So, yeah, that's a Harry and the Henderson story. And it's interesting to see what, because this is a memory test for me, but you mentioned Pat Morita, obviously we knew from Happy Days, we know him from Karate Kid. She ended up being one of the Karate Kid films. Yes, she? yeah, she did. Yeah, uh, she was in the, the next it, Karate it, it, Kid. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, God, what a small world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, it is. With regard to, like, the fan bases, the people you, you uh, you know, obviously you've got horror, you've got people for TV. What's your interaction with the fan base been like for you? You know, people people who come to see me at conventions, my, my, my you know, face-to-face, mm-hmm. it's been, uh, you know, no one, no one stands in front of my table saying you're an untalented piece of shit. You know, they, they all say, we're really happy to meet you or wow, I can't believe I'm actually meeting you. So by nature of it being a fan base, uh, you know, that they're, they're already predetermined to, you know, I'm, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that, uh, I'm that well known. Mm. I, I never really think of like, my wife is completely and utterly shocked. She was when we first did that, you know, I was a semi-celebrity, you know, and um, I don't know. My kids kind of get a kick out of it. They're all adults now, but when they were kids, they, they had fun with what we did, what I did. I want to ask you a convention question. Sure. Which is, I've always, because I've been, you know, I've been to a fair few conventions in my life and I've done press for them and things like that, but... I always have this impression that if you're the the, the person who's a celebrity, a, you know, a guest at a convention, there must be an element of it that's kind of a bit unnerving because you don't really know what you're going into. Well, uh, am I right in thinking that? Look, whenever, whenever you walk into a room and you're the person everyone stares at, right? You walk into an elevator. Like I went in, I was at a, a convention in New Jersey. And my wife and I got into an elevator uh, early in the morning to run downstairs and get some coffee and some pastry. And the elevator stops like three floors after we get on and saw a young girl like in her 20s and her, their, her obviously her boyfriend get on. She takes a look at me and her knees collapse. She said, and she said, oh, my God, it's him. And, you know, I'm just a guy looking for coffee and a pastry. But. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, you know, I'm not as cautious as my or protective of myself as my wife is, you know, um, 
if I'm if I'm in that environment, uh, people have already already been somewhat screened usually to get into those places. Mostly everybody I've seen at conventions are like minded, right? They're there for a reason. They're 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 True. united by their uh, appreciation of of what the convention represents that you know the subject matter. So. I avoid conflict at all costs. It's just just a waste of time because every time, every moment that you're in conflict, you're not having fun. Very true. Now, I just wonder, because once I was at convention, I watched one of the guests come in and you could see this look of real fear on the face. And I'm thinking, I mean, it. it I saw them the second day and they looked less nervous. But on the first day, they looked, you could see this look of apprehension. Not everybody... In, in not not every person who's seen Last House on the Left has the same social boundaries. Let's just put it that way. And sometimes there are people who who for whatever reasons uh, have their own boundaries that kind of like are not what I think they should be. I'm much more forgiving of that than is my. Wife. She doesn't like anybody getting beyond a handshake with me uh unless you know she's she like okays it you know i don't really give a shit you know i'm but i can dig it i can i've i i have seen people when you say about stepping over the boundaries i've seen that at conventions where it it gets possibly a little scary if you know what i mean the people, yeah 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 i've seen yeah. that yeah, and I've definitely not seen really, that. you know, I, I don't, I don't really draw the crazies that well that much. Uh, it, it, some people do, I don't. I, that's, that's very good. <laughs> that's good. To know. So I'm going to ask you. I'm going to take you right up to date. You, uh, you've got an upcoming film called The Once and Future Smash. Oh, I did, yeah, I I did a favor for a friend that. Uh, Neil Jones, the guy who's who made the movie, mm-hmm. he's a big horror guy, and he had a, has a podcast uh, that that uh, was one of the first that wanted to interview me when I started doing these. So I st- stayed in touch with him. I d- during the 2020 election, uh, he he got a bunch of horror people to do public service announcements about voting. Mm-hmm. He's a really good guy, and. Um, you know, I've, I've seen him in real life at, at conventions. I'm, you know, so we met and he told me about this project that he was doing and uh, it sounded kind of fun. <clears throat> Again, favored nations, every paid, everybody, all the horror people the same. And I went to a little place in Hollywood. And I sat in a studio and I did a, like a, like a fake documentary interview. And that's my appearance in it. That's it. Cool, but I, do, I, I look yeah. forward to seeing it. Yeah, and you know, I, I tried to give the directors what they wanted as far as you know, creating this this phony reality for them. So, I haven't seen my work. My youngest son, who's like a rock star chef in L.A., uh, private chef, he went with me that day, and you know, my my kids, as adult as they are, they still get a kick out of like watching me work. Right. You know, so so uh, they they uh, he, he uh, went with me that day and I asked him, I said, how how did it look? He said, hey, I believed you. You know, he said, oh, it's a good sign. 
and they'll yeah. be your kids will be honest with you. <laughs> so, so um, you know, um, that's that's the that's that tune. I don't know. I'm going to ask. You're writing this book. Yes. What can you tell us about it? I'm, I'm intrigued to know more, Mark, about what what you're doing. Well, it's it's kind of like a memoir, you know. Like it's it's I'm writing it as a novel right now. I'm I've, I've created an alter ego for myself, and I'm writing my life that this person that I'm writing about is living. You know, I'm using everything that I did, only it's another person. My agent uh, tells me that uh, when I finish it, I'm going to have to convert it back to me. And and, you know, and I said, well, OK, I, but right now, you know, and then maybe I'll try to turn it into a TV series on a streaming platform. You know, I, I, I like think, that idea. Yeah, I I I think, um, you know, I've got the first year done. I just pretty much finished the first year in 1957. And uh, it was a challenge because I'd never written a book before. And that so makes it like like I'm a real writer and uh, kind of looks OK. In pieces, you know, it's, it's a, a first shot at it. So but I got through the year. I, 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 I told the story I want to tell pretty much the way I want to tell it. So now I'm, I'm going to move on to the next year, which is the Three Stooges year, 1959. Because in every one of these years, something happens that 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 it's like the it's like it had a a a missile guided missile, you know, targeting thing. It was like everything targets a certain direction. And it's this like kind of like the step by step. I guess it's the stepping stones that I was talking about. It's those, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot about my father because of that. That was, yeah. you know uh just how he shaped it right and yeah. how his life sh- helped shape my life but in a positive way i think and then uh you know my hollywood years if i can fit it in you know i'm supposed to so i guess i will and that's, and that's, is, there, is, is there an eta for that uh well i got the first year done mm-hmm. that took me that's and that was the hard, that's that that I I'm going to say because it was all new covering new ground uh, uh, creatively for me the hardest. And that took me about two months working at half speed. Mm-hmm. So I'll start 59. And. I leave back for Los Angeles on the 4th of September. And once I get back into my house, I'll work a longer day, you know, night. I'll, I'll work more hours. So maybe six months I'll have it done. I'll have a draft of it. Well, I, for one, really look forward to, to seeing it when it's fully completed. Uh, I really do. Could be. Can I ask a favor of you? When it's all done, when it's all completed, can I get you back up? talk sure. to you about it because i the thing that will that anyone who's listening to this episode of celluloid codswell will notice one thing i said next to nothing because i have been hooked on what you've been telling me normally i'm gabbing no, away no here's you, my listen 
you got to, I, I tell a lot of podcasters this, you got to tell me when to shut up because I'm my own favorite subject. So get me started and I just keep, you know, I'm 72. I got a lot of shit to talk about. So I could just, you know, talk and talk. Hey, you, you're a brilliant subject. You are a brilliant subject. So for getting contact with you, Mark, for the, for the listeners, we call them tadpoles because of the, because, you know, we, we call talking cods, walk the fish, etc. So, um, how can we get in contact with you? Have you got a website, anything like that? No, Facebook. I'm on Facebook as me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm on Instagram as me. We'll, we'll hit the links up when we're, we're putting the show out. Without further ado to do, I never I never get the term right. Whatever the term is, I never get it right. But I just want to say thank you so much. We've been talking of celluloid codswallop. It has been an absolutely brilliant episode to me, listening to you and learning about you. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank My you. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. You guys take care. <laughs>